power of the resurrection is tremendous. Not just the miracle of it, friends, but the effects that reverberate through all time, even to this moment. When God's power rocked that grave and raised Jesus' body up, he changed not only the course of human history, but he changed all eternity by affirming once again who he is. The resurrection is so important because it affirms and confirms that everything that Jesus said, everything that he taught, everything that he promised was actually true. No other human being could ever have made the claims that Jesus made about himself. And no other human that's ever lived could have said, I'm going to die and then in three days I will be raised again except for the Son of God. God validated for all people for all time who Jesus really is. At the resurrection and he is alive today living and active and powerful our issue oftentimes like Thomas in the gospel is that we're not so sure about that we're not so sure about where we're going and I read recently about on after an Easter Sunday service a boy named Kevin and his grandfather were going to go out and get some breakfast they climbed in the cab of the grandpa's truck and headed down the road and the opportune moment, the grandpa turned to Kevin and said, well, which way is heaven? And Kevin said, it's up there, as he pointed to the sky. The grandpa then asked, well, which way is hell? And little Kevin pointed to the floorboards of the truck below him. And then after a pause, grandpa continued, and where are you going, Kevin? Kevin thought for a moment, then with a big smile said, I'm going to Dunkin' Donuts. He was still focused on earthly things despite the message of Easter he had just heard. A much more notable individual a few years back, Billy Graham, the great evangelist and and just amazing evangelical leader, was invited to a banquet in his honor. He was the honored guest. He wasn't supposed to have a part in the conversation, but when Billy Graham's around, you give him the mic if he wants it. He took the mic and he said, I want to share something. Some years back, he relayed a story that Albert Einstein was on a train. You probably heard this account, but Billy used this in a very specific way about the resurrection. He said, Albert Einstein was on a train traveling from Princeton, and as he was on that train, the conductor came along looking for the ticket, looking for his ticket. And Dr. Einstein said, I'm sorry, I can't find it. Conductor said, don't worry, I know who you are, Just, just relax. The conductor went on collecting the rest of the tickets, and as he looked back in the front of the car, He saw Dr. Einstein on his hands and knees looking under the seat for where his ticket was. Conductor made his way up the aisle again and just said, Dr. Einstein, I know who you are. I don't need to see your ticket. Einstein looked at him and simply said, young man, I too know who I am. I have forgotten where I'm going. I don't know. (laughs) Billy Graham said of himself, I do know where I'm going and I do know who I am because of Jesus Christ. The resurrection can give each one of us in Christ that kind of positive assurance. So Peter tells us in verse 3, as we just read together, in his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now this living hope is something that's solid, not flimsy, wishful thinking. Or kind of like we hope the weather's going to be nice today, we hope something's going to work out, but we have no certainty about it. Or maybe some of us in this room hope that the Cubs are going to win the World Series this year. Now that's delusional thinking, that's way past wishful thinking. Sorry for you Cub fans out there. But hope in the Bible is a rock-solid, absolute certainty about a future event. 
And it's meant not just for us to look forward to heaven one day, though we're all heading in that direction in Christ. It's meant to affect and impact our every single day as we live. Wishful thinking causes us to grow discouraged when our hopes and our dreams in the things in this world continually seem to fail, continually seem to have letdowns, when the things we've wanted and wished for, we start scratching them off the list of the things we'd hoped we'd someday do or hoped we'd someday be, start minimizing, we can easily get discouraged. Einstein also said these words one time about worldly hope, and it illustrates the point, women marry men hoping they will change. Men marry women hoping they will not. So each is inevitably disappointed. That's worldly hope. But our hope in Jesus Christ is firm and it is solid and is secured not by words. It's secured by the person, Jesus Christ, who's gone to heaven ahead of us. And there he awaits every single one of us. My favorite Greek scholar, Kenneth Weiss, puts it this way, defines the hope that Peter's talking about. And he says it's so much better than I could ever say it. I'm going to quote him here. He says this about the passage in 1 Peter. He says, the hope here is not only an objective thing, but a subjective thing on the part of the believer. It is a lively hope that is not only living, but actively alive. And hear this, an energizing principle of divine life in the believer. A Christian hopefulness and optimism produced in the believer that is yielded to the indwelling Holy Spirit. It is both an attitude of expectancy as the Christian looks forward to the resurrection and a hopefulness of present blessing from God in this life in view of the eternal blessedness of the next. And then this key phrase, a child of God has no right to look on the dark side of things and to look for the worst to happen to them. As the object of God's care and love, we have the right to look for the best to come to us and to look at the bright side of things. The Proverbs in chapter 4, verse 18 says this about the righteous life. The path of the righteous, and that's us in Christ, is like the morning sun, shining ever brighter until the full light of day. Brighter and brighter and brighter as we go forward. Hope is such a powerful force, this kind of solid hope. I read a research project some years ago was conducted where a bunch of scientists got some wharf rats and threw them into a a barrel of water. And wharf rats cannot swim very long, but they can swim for a while. The first batch of of rats were put in there, and the average time those rats lasted before they drowned was 17 minutes. They swam and swam and swam and swam and eventually sunk and drowned 17 minutes then they repeated the same experiment but this time they rescued the rats just before the point of drowning dried them off returned them to their cages fed them and let them play for a few days and then they repeated that same exact drowning experiment this time the average survival time for these rats increased from 17 minutes to 36 hours scientists explained this phenomenon by pointing out that the second time around those rats had hope They believed they could survive this because they'd done so before. And they were able to survive because they had been saved. Friends, we hope for a better life, don't we? We have been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. As Peter puts it, we've been given new birth, a new life. And we know where we're going. And those thoughts need to occupy and populate our thinking and our attitudes on a regular basis. But somehow I feel some of us in the sanctuary here this morning might feel like those rats swimming around, 
barely keeping your head above water, somehow wondering how you're going to get through. How do we lose our joy? How do we get to that place where we feel like we're on that treadmill, just scratching and clawing and just barely hanging on? Well, life does throw us some curveballs once in a while, doesn't it? And Peter answers this in a very succinct way in the same passage in verse 6. He says, in all this you greatly rejoice, you're really excited about it. Though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Fact is that while we're greatly rejoicing about our heaven and the plans God has for us in heaven, we get distracted. We get wrapped up in We get engulfed in and our whole being is absorbed in the trials and difficulties that we're dealing with. Though we think we as Christians who come to church, we look at the scriptures, we read them, we study them, we memorize them, and we know these things to be true. We think that we'd be of that attitude of hopefulness all the time. But my nearly 40 years as a Christian and as a leader have told me something that's exactly the opposite. So many Christ followers end up feeling discouraged. Because things aren't working out in this world the way they'd hoped or planned. The hopes are dashed on life's realities. And that that discouragement can lead them to become disillusioned. To wonder, what do I really believe in? What's really going on here? Where is God after all? He promised all these things. Where is he now? If that disillusionment is allowed to linger long enough, we drift further and further away from biblical truth and the knowledge we have of who God is and what he's done for us, even into depression. We start thinking things are not hopeful, but we go to the end of the other end of the spectrum and start feeling hopeless. And if we live in hopelessness too long, we can drift down into despair, or we just throw our hands up and give up and just allow life to happen to us. Friends, that... By no means is God's intention. Life is hard. Life throws us things we aren't planning for many times. Situations and circumstances that we just simply weren't prepared for. And that's where Peter tells us the trials and testing of our faith faith is for a good purpose. We don't like them. We would choose other paths. How many of you would choose a different path than some of the things God has allowed you to experience in your life? We all would have chosen the easier path, wouldn't we? We would have chosen a simpler route. And every time I think I've gotten to an equilibrium with that stuff, God has some more steps for me to climb and throws me back another step of dependence upon him. But the issue here, friends, is what we're focusing on. If we focus on the things in this world that are getting us down, we will feel down. We'll lose our perspective Dan Zadra put it this way about worry and wrong thinking. He said this, Worry is a misuse of your imagination. Live as many moments as possible in the quiet, joyous expectation of good. Thornton Wilde captured this thought this way. He said, Hope is a projection of the imagination, and so is despair. Despair all too readily embraces the ills it foresees. Hope is an energy that arouses the mind to explore every possibility to combat them. In response to hope, the imagination is aroused to picture every possible issue, to try every door, to fit together even the most diverse pieces in the puzzle. Hope is a powerful force. We need to come back to that place where we allow hope to have its place in us. As I said a few moments ago, life is hard, and Howard Hendricks, in his book Taking a Stand, said this, 
we are all faced with a series of great opportunities, brilliantly disguised as unsolvable problems. I love that. Until we see God work us through a situation or guide us through a difficult series of events, we see impossibilities. But God sees possibilities for us because he has destined us for glory. We need to say that about ourselves, that we are destined for glory. No matter what this life, no matter what the devil, no matter what the evil in this world throws at us, we have a destiny in God, and it's for glory in heaven because of the resurrection. But if you were given a choice between these two things, the easier road or the better one, what would you do? John Corson shares this great illustration. Just imagine that next week you're going to head from Chicago to Los Angeles by a flight. And you go to the ticket counter at Delta Airlines, and they report to you saying, you know what, the pilots have been reporting very bumpy ride to L.A. all this last week, and that you can expect a great deal of turbulence this coming week when you get on this flight. It's going to be bumpy, but our planes are very well maintained. And we guarantee that you'll get there safely and on time. And you say, well, hold on. Wait a minute. Let me talk to another airline here. I don't like that. Go down to American Airlines and talk to the ticket agent. And the ticket agent says, well, I can guarantee you a perfectly smooth flight all the way to L.A. There won't be a simple, single amount of turbulence. You'll just be able to sleep the whole thing through. The only problem is our pilots have been having a hard time landing the planes lately. The, the landing gear has been breaking, and just every once in a while, the landing gear falls off, and they have a crash landing. Well, that's a real easy choice. I'll take the bumpy ride with the smooth landing, wouldn't you? Friends, the bumpy ride of our trials all lead us to the smoothest, beautiful landing one day. When our number is called and we make our way to heaven, when we get to look Jesus in the eye... All of the bumps along the way will be quickly forgotten and we'll be rejoicing forevermore with him. One of the ways that we can help ourselves do this better, navigate through this life, is to recognize and understand some of the ways that our thinking has become a little twisted or a little bit off kilter or a little bit not aligned with the word of God. And it happens to all of us. That's why the Bible says, renew your minds. Let the word of God change the way you think. Not just what you think about. And Dr. David Burns in his fantastic book called The Feeling Good Handbook shares ten forms of twisted or wrong thinking. And I want to share those with you here. As I read through this list, you may say, oh, that's me. Yeah, I feel that way sometimes. Or maybe all ten of these are things you feel sometimes. And that's probably the case for many of us. But the first step of being able to change how we're thinking and thus how we're experiencing life is to recognize it. And once we do, we can replace those thoughts with God's thoughts. The first form he mentions is something called all-or-nothing thinking. You see things in black or white categories. If a situation falls short of perfect, you see it as a total failure. Example of that might be a young woman who's on a diet. She eats one spoonful of ice cream and she tells herself, I've blown my diet completely. That thought upsets her so much that she eats a whole half gallon of ice cream. That's all-or-nothing thinking. The scriptures tell us in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Instead of thinking all or nothing, we think all is possible based on the scriptural promise. A second form of thinking that Dr. Burns points out is discounting the positive. You reject positive experiences by insisting they don't count. 
If you do a good job on something, you may tell yourself it wasn't good enough or anyone could have done that. You discount the positive, and when you do that, you take the joy out of your life and makes you feel inadequate or unrewarded. But Jesus said, even if you give one cup of cold water to a child in his name, one act of Christian kindness, you will not lose your reward. Every Christian act that you've done in Jesus' name has been recorded in his book, and you will be richly rewarded for every single one of them when you reach heaven. You have a destiny in him. A third form of wrong thinking, Dr. Burns points out, is emotional reasoning, and this is a biggie. You assume that your negative emotions necessarily reflect the way things really are. For instance, I feel terrified about going on airplanes. It must be dangerous to fly. I feel guilty, therefore I must be a rotten person. I feel angry, and this proves I'm being treated unfairly. I feel so inferior. This means I'm a second-rate person. I feel hopeless. I must really be hopeless. The scriptures, however, tell us that we walk by faith in God's word and his promise, not by our feelings or by our sight or our perceptions. We cannot let our emotions run our lives. We must allow our emotions to come in line with the promises of God's word, and our feelings will appropriately follow. A fourth way of thinking he wants us to correct is jumping to conclusions. All of us are good at that, aren't we? We know enough, we hear something, we're jumping to that conclusion. We interpret things negatively when there are no facts to absolutely confirm our conclusion. Another form of that is mind reading. Without checking it out, we arbitrarily conclude that someone is reacting negatively to us. Or we do some fortune telling. You predict that things will not will turn out badly. Before a test, you might tell yourself, I'm really going to blow it. What if I flunk? We jump to the negative conclusion. I read an account that illustrates this so well. There was an old man, no respect, disrespect to anybody here, that's the older person like myself, sat down on his favorite bench one day, just as he did every single day. The other end of the bench was a young man. Both of them were reading their newspapers. After a few minutes, the young man said to the older gentleman, excuse me, sir, would you happen to have the time? The older gentleman looked at the young man and looked at him for a second and said, no, he said, and then went back to reading his paper. Puzzled at this, the young man said, Sir, I don't mean to be a pest, but I see that you're wearing a watch. Yet when I asked you for the time, you said no. Have I offended you in some way? The older gentleman said, You know what? Not at all, he said. Then he went back to reading his paper. But I don't understand, the young man said. Why won't you give me the time? At this, the older gentleman put his paper down. Well, when you first sat down, I noticed you. You seemed nice enough, clean cut and all. You seem interested in the world and its current events, and as I noticed by particular, that paper that you're reading is the same one that I read. Then you asked me for the time, and I figured out if I gave you the time, we might strike up a conversation, and you would probably tell me about yourself, and I'd probably like you, and we'd become friends. Then I would probably invite you to my house sometime to meet my family. If that happened, you would meet my wonderful daughter, whom I love very much. She would probably like you. And you would likely like her as well. So the two of you would become friends and then go out on a date. And if that happened, chances are you would fall in love and get married. And then he continued, and I'll be hanged if I'm going to let my daughter marry any man who doesn't own a watch. Now, now, (laughs) that's really jumping to conclusions, friends. The conclusion the scripture points us to 
is in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where it says, And we know that in God, in, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We need to start setting our indicator towards expecting positive outcomes because God is on the scene in our lives. A fifth form of wrong thinking is magnification. We exaggerate the importance of our problems and shortcomings, or we minimize the importance of our desirable qualities. Might say making a bad stock investment, which is all of us, causes you to say that you're terrible at handling money. A sixth way we mistake our thinking process is we put a mental filter on. We pick out a single negative detail and dwell on it exclusively so that our vision of all reality becomes darkened like a drop of ink that discolors a beak of water. Philippians 4.8, on the other hand, says to us, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. A seventh way he corrects us is by a uh, wrong way of thinking is overgeneralization. We see a single negative event as a never-ending pattern of defeat by using words such as always or never when we think about it. Maybe a romantic rejection leads us to the conclusion that I'll never find anyone to share my life with. All the good ones are taken already. I'll never love again. It's overgeneralizing the situation. But Philippians points us to this thought. Don't be anxious about anything. But in every situation, give thanks to God, and the peace of Christ will guard your hearts. That's the promise of God's word. Three more I want to share with you before we move on. Labeling is another form of thinking that we need to recognize and correct. It's an extreme form of all-or-nothing thinking. Instead of saying, I made a mistake, you attach a negative label to yourself. I'm a loser. Calling yourself a fool, a failure, or a jerk. That inner speak that goes on so commonly. Negative labeling labeling of yourself leads to anger and frustration and a sense of hopelessness. On the other hand, the scriptures tell us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive all our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. With God, his mercies are new every morning. A ninth form of thinking we want to correct are should statements. You tell yourself things should be the way you hoped or expected them to be. And when they don't turn out that way, you get angry or frustrated. The scriptures tell us, however, in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. We need to treat ourselves the way God treats us, not based on our sins, but based on his great grace. And last but not least, the tenth form of twisted thinking is personalization and blame. Personalization occurs when you hold yourself personally responsible for an event that isn't entirely under your control. This leads to guilt and shame and feelings of inadequacy. An example of that would be when a person receives a note that their child is having difficulties at school and they tell themselves, this shows what a bad parent I am, instead of trying to pinpoint the issue in the child's life and dealing with it rationally. Friends, we have the opportunity today and every day is to take an honest assessment of where we're at on that hope indicator. How much is that energizing hope of the resurrection influencing how we think about our everyday comings and goings? Peter says it this way further on in this passage in chapter 1 in 1 Peter. He says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. 
Be self-controlled. And then this key phrase, set your hope fully on the grace given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Friends, I want to encourage you, even urge you today to think about the plans God has for your eternity. We make great plans. Most of us try to plan for our eventual heaven going. We write wills. We make estate plans. We buy insurance. We buy life insurance. We make all of those kind of plans about what we're dealing with and leaving behind. It's time, friends, we start thinking about the plans for being in heaven. Meditate on it. Think about it. Plan on it. Dream about it. Fact is, the average human born today gets 30,000 mornings, like today. 30,000. So if you're 20 or so, you have about 23,000 mornings left. If you're 40 or so, you have about 15,000 mornings left. If you're 60-ish, around the age I'm at, you have about 8,000 mornings left. Number's getting smaller there, isn't it? If you're 75 or so, you have about 2,500 mornings left. This shouldn't alarm or concern us. This should be a cause for excitement. Our graduation is coming. The time is near. But we must become very intentional, friends, about changing the way we think on a daily basis. None of us knows the exact moment when God will call us home. Those are just rough averages there. But this should cause great excitement, as Peter said. In these thoughts of the resurrection, we greatly rejoice. One of those who did this shared this letter with Charles Fuller, who is the founder of the Fuller Theological Seminary some years back. You might have read this, but it's a letter he received when Dr. Fuller was going to share on the topic of heaven in a service that Sunday. Here's part of that letter. Next Sunday, you're about to talk about heaven. I'm interested in that land because I've held a clear title to a bit of property there for over 55 years. I did not buy it. It was given to me without money and without price. But the donor purchased it for me at great sacrifice. I'm not holding it for speculation since the title is not transferable. But it's not a vacant lot. For more than half a century, I have been sending materials out of which the greatest architect and builder of the universe has been building a home for me, which will never need to be remodeled or repaired because it will suit me perfectly, individually, and will never grow old. He goes on to say, fire can never destroy it, floods cannot wash it away, and no locks or bolts will ever be placed upon its doors. It's now almost completed and ready for me to enter in and abide in peace eternally without fear of ever being rejected. I hope to hear your sermon on heaven next Sunday from my home in Los Angeles, but I have no assurance that I will be able to do so. My ticket to heaven has no date marked for the journey and no opportunity to come back, no return coupon, and no permit for baggage. Yes, I'm ready to go, and I may not be here while you're speaking next Sunday, but I shall meet you there someday. Friends, you and I have been sending materials ahead of us storing up treasures in heaven that God and his system of accountings kept record of every bit of it. And he has prepared a place for you that's out of this world, and you are going to love it. Let your minds go there often. Dwell on it. Think on it. Let those thoughts lift your spirits. But I suspect it's possible that some of us aren't really that sure. We're going to get there. Even after hearing the truth, even after knowing and being around church for most of our lives, 
we may not have that certainty that Jesus wants us to have. And let me share an illustration that will help you. A doctor did a research project, Dr. Paul Ruskin did a research project some years back and wrote a paper called The Stages of Aging. In this article he wrote, he described a case study he had presented to his students when teaching a class in medical school. He described the case study patient under his care like this. The patient neither speaks nor comprehends the spoken word. Sometimes she babbles incoherently for hours on end. She's disoriented about person, place, and time. She does, however, respond to her name. I've worked with her for the past six months, but she still shows complete disregard for her physical appearance and makes no effort to assist her own care. She must be fed, bathed, clothed, and helped in every way by others. Because she has no teeth, her food must be pureed. Her shirt is usually soiled from almost incessant drooling. She does not walk. Her sleep pattern is erratic. Often she wakes in the middle of the night with her screaming and she awakens others. Most of the time she is friendly and happy, but several times a day she gets quite agitated without apparent cause. Then she wails until someone comes to comfort her. After presenting the class with this challenging case, Dr. Ruskin then asked his students if any one of them would like to volunteer to take care of this person. No one volunteered. Then Dr. Ruskin said this, I'm surprised that none of you offered to help because actually she is my favorite patient. I get immense pleasure from taking care of her, and I'm learning so much from her. She has taught me the depth of gratitude I never knew before. She has taught me the spirit of unwavering trust, and she has taught me the power of unconditional love. Then Dr. Ruskin said this, Let me show you her picture. He pulled out the picture and passed it around. It was the photo of his six-month-old baby daughter. Friends, God is your father. You may feel helpless in your spiritual walk. You may not feel that developed or as Christian as you want to be. You may feel like you're not making it. But God sees you as his child. If you're a spiritual infant, he understands all the problems. He understands your dirty diapers. He understands all of that. He loves you purely, and he sees a vision of your life with him in heaven forever. The hope we have is the promise that God has determined to take you and I to heaven because of Jesus Christ. Let's take great hope in that today as we pray. Father, we thank you today that though we were far off from you, helpless and we were hopeless, unable to save ourselves, unable to rectify our situation, you sent your son, the Lord Jesus, into this world because you so loved us when we were helpless that he died for us. And then on the third day, he was raised up forevermore and he is working, interceding for us, developing us by his Holy Spirit and determined to bring us whole and perfect into your eternal kingdom. Lord, lift our hearts and minds this day through these thoughts in Jesus' name. Amen.